Good morning and welcome back. It seems that all of you were part of our Christmas Eve celebration. At least a lot of you were because we had 900 people here over three services. And that is by far the most people that have ever attended uh, at any time in our church, including previous Easter's. And that happened because you, you invited people. It's not, the, it's not the street sign, okay? It matters a little bit, but what makes the difference is personal invitation, your concern for others, and inviting them to church. Thank you so much for doing that. I've had so many unsolicited comments from people uh, sharing with me very encouragingly what God has did in their family, uh, how they responded to that time of worship together as we celebrated the birth of Jesus. So thank you very, very much for being a part of that. And this is kind of the letdown time of the year. Are you there yet? Are you in the post-Christmas slump yet? You're laughing because you recognize what I'm talking about, right? Tough time of year. All the presents have been opened. The extended family has departed for the most part. That may or may not be a good thing. Um, you know, for some it may be relief. For others it will bring sadness. But you've bought all the presents... And now you're starting to look ahead at next year, and we still don't have the exhilaration of the new year and the resolutions and the parties and all that. It's a slumpy kind of time of year. You're starting to think now that all the presents have been unwrapped and some of them have already been broken. How are we going to pay for all of that celebrating? You look into the bank balance, and the bank balance is low. Step on the scale, and the number is high. That was my experience. Uh, had you been able to see inside my bedroom very early this morning, you would have seen a stupid man who knows better stepping on the scale and going like this. Like, what? How did this happen? Gee, I don't know. Uh, nine months of acting like it doesn't matter uh, catches up to you. And there's been all this energy of celebration, and granted, Christmas can be a difficult time for some because of the people we've lost and the people we miss, but most of us find great, find at least some joy and some warmth in it, but now that's over. And the tree is dry, and the bills are starting to come in, and you're looking ahead to the next year, and for most of us, if we're paying attention, along with the excitement of a new year come questions about how it's going to go. How are the kids going to do? How's the job going to work out? How are my finances going to make it through this year in view of what I just did to my bank account celebrating this Christmas? It's already over and I didn't have as much fun as I thought I would. There's a little post-Christmas slump. It wasn't Christmas, but that's exactly what the disciples are going through in the story we're reading this morning. In Mark chapter 6, we're told of a pivotal time in Jesus' ministry. For the first time, he sends his 12 disciples, the one he has chosen to be with him and to send them out to preach. For the first time in their ministry career, he has sent them out on their own. He pairs them off two by two, and they go out, and he gives them explicitly authority to do the kinds of things that he was doing. So Mark, in his very spare journalistic style, quickly reports that they were preaching and they were casting out demons and they were healing the sick. And for ordinary men, that had to be a very heady, exciting time. Remember, Jesus 
then and now draws his disciples from all that God has to work with, which is ordinary people. The single greatest profession among the disciples is commercial fishermen. Now, these are good men, and they're good at what they do, but they're just ordinary, blue-collar, hard-working men, and now something that they never expected is part of their daily experience. Jesus has sent them out into the surrounding villages with these very strict instructions that they're not to provide for themselves financially. They're going to go into places and homes that don't know them, announce the good news of Jesus as the Savior, and they're going to live off the hospitality and generosity of people who receive them. Explicitly, they're not to take great provisions for themselves. And sure enough, God provides. The gospel is preached. Demons are cast out in the name of Jesus. The sick are healed in the name of Jesus. And they come back to Jesus and they tell him all that they've been doing. And again, Mark is quick in his style, but another gospel tells us that when they give this kind of report to Jesus, they are marveling at what they're able to do. And Jesus takes a good look at them and he sees that they're tired. And that's where the slump comes from. In this Christmas season, you've been putting forth all this energy to decorate and to be hospitable and to be patient with that one crazy family member who just can't let anybody else have a good time, not even this year, not even this time of the year, so you're going to be extra kind to him, and it's exhausting to be that nice. And you've been putting forth all this energy, and now that's over, and all the joy and all the mixed emotions, it's all over, and now comes this letdown. They're spent disciples are because what they've been doing in Jesus' name. Jesus recognizes it and he says to them, let's get off the grid. They've been so tired, in fact, they've been so busy, it says that they haven't even had time to eat. Ever, have, ever work so hard that you don't have time to eat? Not really, right? I mean, I can always find five minutes for 2,000 calories. That uh, tends not to be a problem. But that's the disciples' experience. They are run ragged, and in Mark chapter 6, Jesus said, let's come apart before you come apart. Let's get off the grid. Let's rest. And then the worst possible thing from the disciples' point of view happens. And Jesus and the disciples are going to see different things in this experience, and this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels. Aside from the resurrection of Jesus, it's the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four Gospels. God really wants to draw your attention to what Jesus did here, and he's going to take them very deliberately through something that he wants them to learn because he wants to do something, and he doesn't want them to miss it. And I chose this passage, which is by far my favorite story in the Gospels. You've probably heard it before if you've been attending here for years because I don't want us, I don't want me, I don't want you and our church family to miss what Jesus wants to do. But as always, disciple means that somebody else is in charge. Somebody else is the master. If I'm the disciple, he's the master, he's the teacher. That means that it's my part to adjust my thinking, my vision, my agenda to his. And there's a struggle with that. And that's what goes on in Mark chapter 6. You can read the story with me. I put it on your outline, or you can follow along in your own Bible, Mark chapter 6, verse 30. After all this excitement, after all this success, it says the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. 
And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Note the repetition. They're going to a desolate place by themselves. That's why I say they're trying to get off the grid. They're going to a forsaken place, to a desolate place where people simply do not go, and they are going, Mark says, by themselves. And here comes this terrible thing. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. Oh, man. See, they're going across the Sea of Galilee, but it's dotted with little villages and little settlements. And Jesus has done such an extraordinary job. He is doing things that only God can do. He is the most recognizable man in this whole country. If he were in modern media, they would say that his Q factor is high. He is recognizable. And it just takes one. Probably some kid skipping rocks across the Sea of Galilee looks out and says, it's Jesus. And he yells to his buddy, hey, it's Jesus and his disciples. And the word starts spreading, and they come out of these little homes and villages, and they start running around the lake to the place where Jesus and his disciples are headed in the boat so that by the time the boat lands, there's probably hundreds of people waiting. And the disciples have got to be thinking, and I'll show you why I think this. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, we haven't, had a square we haven't had a square meal in days. What's it take? They're hearing the excited shouts and the name of Jesus echoing across the water. Like, oh, no. Maybe the rooter among them is going, go home, go home. We're closed. It's time off. If they had email, they would have had the auto reply off. If they had it on, if they had cell phones, they would have turned them off. Say, we're exhausted, please come back later. Your spiritual needs will be met at a later time when we are more able to give of ourselves. But Jesus sees something different, and this is where Mark starts to help you see the competing agendas. Because a very polite conversation is now going to take place. But the disciples, knowing their place and knowing who this is and what he's like and what power he can give are going to gently try to help Jesus see things as they are. You ever try to help Jesus understand? I do. I explain things to him as if he didn't know already. Watch. Verse 34, when he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Jesus and the disciples, I'm convinced, are seeing different things. And I'll show you why I believe that about the disciples. But when Jesus sees not a smattering of people, not a small gathering, there is already a great crowd waiting. In fact, probably someone who was in charge of tying up the boat had to say, could you at least step back so we can dock? And by the time they wade ashore, there's already a crowd there. Here's where the battle between doing it and missing it starts. When Jesus comes ashore, he doesn't see an interruption. He doesn't see a burden. He sees a great crowd and he has, Mark tells, takes us into the mind and thoughts and feelings of Jesus. And Jesus has, what's the word? 
He has compassion on them. Now, I don't want to confuse anybody. The New Testament was written in Greek. And our English word compassion, we made that up out of two Latin words that we put together. So it's not the original language of the Bible, but the, word, the, the Latin words that we chose to make the English word compassion do help us understand what compassion is. The Latin words are com and passio, which means to suffer with. When you have compassion on someone, you hurt with them. You suffer with them. And that's a good portrayal of what's happening in Jesus' heart. The disciples, as I'm going to show you, they, they want this to be done. They didn't say so in so many words, but they're politely trying to move things along so that they can finally get the rest that Jesus himself knows that they deserve. It was his idea to get off the grid. And now the crowd, as the crowd sometimes will, has come with all of their needs and there's a bunch of them. By the end of the story, you're going to be told that there were 5,000 men there. That means there were at least 15,000 people. Because this isn't exactly church, but everybody knows that more women and children come to church than men. So conservatively speaking, you've got a crowd of 15,000. And Jesus sees something the disciples don't. He sees them like sheep not having a shepherd. And he does what Jesus always does when he sees people lost without God he begins to explain. And we're not told what this teaching is, but it would have been something probably like this. He would have told them that he was the good shepherd and that their previous shepherds, their religious leaders had led them in a false way and were hirelings who had no compassion for the sheep. For the sheep. That's what he said in John 10, that he was the good shepherd who would give his life for them and they could be safe and they could be healed, not only physically but spiritually, that the physical miracles only were a picture of what God could do for their whole being. And I think the disciples are putting up with it. And they're about to miss it because look at what it says next. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. You see why I say I think the disciples are enduring it? That's a very polite thing that they said to Jesus. It seems to show great concern for the crowd. But what's the one thing they asked Jesus to do in all that verbiage? Send them away. Never should have been here. You know this is a desolate place. That was kind of the point, right? You said come to a desolate place and get some rest. Well, here we are in a desolate place. It's not so desolate. It's like Manhattan now. And listen, Lord, it's, it's late. There's some kids in the crowd. Their blood sugar's down. They've thrown three fits. I saw one woman spank a kid five times. He's, he's tired. Send him home. They need food. There might be a diabetic in here. We don't know. We don't wouldn't want someone passing out on the way home. There's all this concern, but what they want Jesus to do is to send the crowd away. Reasonable or unreasonable? See, we know the end of the story, and we know this is Jesus, and we know how it works out, so it's easy to stand in judgment of the disciples. But if you put yourself in the dust of the first century and you're seeing the crowd and there's no electric lights, it's getting dark, there's kids of all ages, there's a woman who came with three kids all by herself, there's no husband to take her safely home and protect her along the way, 
Very reasonable idea. Send them away. Here comes Jesus. So inconvenient. So uncooperative with my vision, with my agenda. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. Reasonable or unreasonable? That was a murmur, which did not reach understandably. My cerebral cortex. What was that? Was that our... That was a very unreasonable command. You feed them. And they get it. They understand that it's unreasonable. And here comes the very polite pushback. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? Now, a denarius was a man's wage for one day's work. So 200 days work, counting the Sabbath off, that's about eight months worth of a man's salary. Tens of thousands of dollars in our time. And they're out in the middle of nowhere. They're supposed to be off the grid, remember? So they very politely asked Jesus a rhetorical question to show him how unreasonable he's being. They're poor fishermen. They're ordinary people who have left what little they had to follow him, and they've just come back from a mission where he said, don't take any money with you. Have you lost it? It's desolate where it was supposed to be. Now we've got all these people walking around. They're hungry. They have needs. They need to go home. Send them away so they can get something to eat. You feed them. Seriously? If we had $35,000, we couldn't do that. And Jesus asked this amazing question. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Now, here's the question for you. You know what's going to happen next. Jesus is going to take this lunch, which another gospel, another account tells us is a kid's sack lunch. Five pieces of bread, two little fish. All those people, only one kid had a Jewish mother who cared enough to send him out with food for the day. Okay? She took good care of him that day. And one disciple in the other account says, here's a boy with this little bit of food, but what is that for so many? I mean... It's nothing. But did you see that he told them, how much food do you have? Go find out. Here's the question. Does Jesus need these small elements to get started? Some kind of magician that needs the right hat and the right rabbit to make the thing work? Why do it then? Because again, imagine that that's 20,000 people, which is a pretty safe assumption. You can make it 15,000 if you don't want to exaggerate. Certainly fifteen. You've got 12 guys working through a disorganized crowd in the wilderness asking some 15,000 people, do any of you have anything to eat? How long did that take? Anybody here have any food? Hey, folks, you came two miles out. Did anybody think to bring anything to eat? No, no, no. And John's thinking, man, I hope Peter's doing better than I am. And they finally regrouped at Jesus, and I promise you there were looks across the way saying, see, I, I told you, here's all we have. And look what Jesus does. It's very purposeful. I want you to think about this as you face your next year. There's never been a moment in his eternal existence where Jesus looked down into your life and your world and thought, oh man, what will I do now? He doesn't deal with contingency plans. 
There is no plan B. He's always purposeful, and this is as purposeful as anything he's ever done. It says in verse 39, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Why did Jesus have the disciples gather the food? Why did he take it in his hands and make a point of praying, looking up to heaven to ask for his Father's blessing on what he was about to do? Most importantly, why does it say that Jesus organized the crowd into smaller groups that could easily be fed, but why did he give the disciples alone the food? Did you notice that? It says he divided the food and gave it to, to whom? To the disciples. Now, 12 men feeding 15 to 20,000 people. They're organized in groups of 50 or 100, but how many trips does that take? They're continually going out to the further and further reaches the crowd. They probably would have asked for help, but they are the first link in the chain that's going to Jesus and getting the food, and they are continually thinking on every trip back, where's all this coming from? I mean, I was there. I helped. Eleven of us came up empty. One of us came up with a kid's sack lunch. Where is all this coming from? Here are the lessons that the disciples needed to learn the reason this story, I'm convinced, is in the Gospels four different times from four different points of view for historical reports is that the disciples, we tend to miss what Jesus is doing. And it's very understandable for us to miss what Jesus is doing, but believe me, in this new year of life, if God gives you a full year of life like the one that is just ending, you don't want to miss what Jesus is doing. And if you're his disciple, you're his learner, you're his student, just like your other teachers, you're going to be competing with him for control. There's going to be two ways of looking at reality and looking at your circumstances. And the process of discipleship is more and more trusting that Jesus sees the truth and doing what he asks you to do. Here's how we can miss out on what Jesus is doing. First of all, we make very reasonable plans based on our needs instead of what Jesus sees. What did the disciples need when that little boat ran aground? That was not a rhetorical question. That was, a, that was an honest question. What did, they, what did they need? They needed rest. Did Jesus know it? Absolutely. It was his idea. So the disciples see the crowd and they see an interruption. They see a delay in them getting what they legitimately need. Jesus sees something bigger. He sees something more important. He sees a crowd like sheep without a shepherd. How does that apply to the disciples at Cross Point at the end of 2014? When we leave worship and we've sung our songs and we've heard the Bible taught and we've fellowshiped with other Christians, and we've given our offering, and we've done all the things that Christians do and worship to God on a Sunday, and you walk back out into what Christians often call the real world, what is it that we see? 
You know what Jesus sees when he looks across Huntington Beach and Westminster and Garden Grove and Seal Beach and Lakewood and Long Beach and all the towns that you come from? He sees people, if they don't know him, he sees people like sheep without a shepherd. And we've got to stay in touch with what he sees. What we need is real, but what he sees is preeminent. That's the priority. Because there's probably not a better place in the entire world that has cultivated the idea of faking it until you make it somehow than Orange County. I mean, I know that people don't have hope without Jesus. He told me so, and I've seen it played out in real life hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But I'll meet people in Orange County who are successful and have it all together and own a beautiful home, and the the 2.5 kids are doing great. I mean, they've got the whole American dream working. And I'll think to myself, you know, they don't know Jesus, but man, really sharp, really nice, really successful. And then sometimes after two years of friendship... I'll have this kind of conversation. Hey, you're a pastor, right? Yeah. Can I talk to you for a second? And out pours all the brokenness. Jesus sees that every day. He sees the person who knows he's destitute and hopeless and maybe homeless in our community, and he sees the person who has it all. And if they don't have him, he sees them the same way, like sheep without a shepherd. And if you don't see that you'll miss out on what Jesus is doing. What else do the disciples do to miss out on what Jesus is doing? This is probably the most common thing for honest, sincere Christians. Here's the deal. We wait to have more until we do what he says. More what? Well, more of everything. Let me make it personal and practical since we're starting these story small groups. And we're inviting you not only to come on Sunday, but to get into a small group of people near your home to read the Bible together and to discuss it, to see what Jesus wants you to do as God's unfolding story is read and explained in your life. The number one reason people won't do that is they will say we are what? It's amazing. I didn't even try to telegraph that. I didn't even hint where it was going. But you're thinking, I don't have time for that. I can barely get here on Sunday. In fact, about half the time on the way here, I think about going back because just so tired. I don't know how long Bruce is going to take anyway, and the kids are just brutal. And them hitting the welcome center and eating a chocolate donut and drinking two pots of coffee is not going to help. And that's there went my nap and the whole day shot. Why am I doing this? Yeah, we're busy, you're right. Most of the sincere Christians that I know are waiting to have more time before they do what Jesus asked them to do. Can I just give you a pastoral word of caution and encouragement on that? Everyone I know feels starved for time. You have all the time to do what Jesus wants you to do, you just don't have any time to waste. There will never be a season in your life where you think you will have time enough to do everything he said. The disciples didn't feel that way. See, when you're a student, one of my kids explained to me, and I think he got this off an internet meme, as a student, you've got time for two out of three things, but never three out of three things. You can either dedicate time to your study or sleep or your extracurriculars. You can choose two, but the third one has to be sacrificed. 
Students are pressed for time. They're starved for time. Then you get out of school and you start dating and a lot of people get married and then there's just an abundance of time, right? Then it's easy. <laughs> no. Believe it or not, you'll feel even more time-starved then because you're trying to get your career started and you're trying maybe to buy a house and you're trying to make the grade at work and all this education has somehow has to pay off. You've got to learn your trade. You've got to impress the boss and you're so busy. Then you have the blessing of children and time is somehow multiplied and sleep is abundant. Right? No, now you're really sleep deprived. And you're saying, in my case, crazy things to your wife who is pregnant and very, very sick in the middle of the night and you're in seminary and you say to her at 2 o'clock in the morning, could you close the bathroom door so at least one of us could get some sleep? <laughs> Thankfully, you honestly don't remember saying that and when questioned the next morning, you honestly have no recollection of that coming out of your dark little heart and you say, honey, I don't remember and it's true, so your life is spared. But the kids are born, and then they're in school, and they're starved for time, and so are you. And then the kids finally get out of school, and they graduate, and they go off, and they kind of, sort of, maybe start lives of their own. And you're really busy helping them get all that started, but then you look at your bank account and the condition of your body and your health, and you think, man, if I don't buckle down and get serious about retirement, I'm going to be in a box on the side of the road and you close that career strong, and in all that time, you've been telling Jesus, if only I had more time, I could do what you said. See, what the miracle happens is when you give him what little you have, and you offer him sometimes from fearful hands what little he has given, you'll find out that you can do the same thing these disciples did. You can do everything he asks you to do with what little you have, but don't wait until you have more. Some people are waiting to have more money before they become generous givers. If we can just get the house paid off, if we can just get the down payment together, if we can just make rent a little more easily, if we can just get our car fixed, if we can just do this one thing now, I'll be generous like Jesus told his disciples to do. On this story thing, as we invite people to lead and to facilitate groups, a common thing that Christians say to Jesus is, I'll do what you're asking me to do when I have more experience. Once I'm fully trained, once my heart and head are completely filled with Bible knowledge, then I'll know that I can do what you ask. Can I tell you a secret? I'm a pastor. I went to seminary. I'm still in seminary. I'm a complete ignoramus, actually about all that this book says and all this Savior is. Nobody ever knows enough. There's never enough knowledge. There's never enough experience. The point is that he's the master. And he's going to take what little you have, and in his hands it's going to be enough. It's going to be enough. Because the big mistake and the one that sums up, I think, all of the disciples' shortcomings in that time and in ours is this. When Jesus is asking us to do these incredible things, we look at what we have instead of who he is. They should have trusted him the first time. 
They have seen him do things that only God can do. But the reality of having a kid's sack lunch to feed 15,000 people is so unreasonable, so irrational, so completely out of the box that they say we can't. Here's the point, disciples. When you say to Jesus, I can't, you know what he says? You're right. But I can. When Paul is writing the Corinthians, he marvels about the amazing collision between the good news of Jesus coming into the lives of dying people, and he reflects on his work, and he says, who is sufficient for these things? In other words, who's good enough? Who has enough capacity to do what we're doing? And in the next chapter, he gives you the answer. He says, our sufficiency, our capacity, our competence comes from God. See, if you spend the rest of your life evaluating your ability to do what Jesus is asking you to do on the basis of your own capacity, you'll miss it. You won't do it. And you'll tell Jesus your whole life from your youth in junior high and high school, just wait until I have a little more experience, a little more time, a little more training, a little more money, a little more success, and then I'll do it. And you'll find out at the end of your life that your entire life has passed before you and you never actually boldly obey Jesus and you never saw the miracle happen because you refused to place in his hands what little he had given you. Because it's about who he is, not what we can do. So Jesus takes this little bit of food and he looks up to heaven and he blesses it. And he starts dividing it among the disciples, the bread and the fish. And they feed the crowd, every one of them. Everyone goes home full. And then at the end, he must have told them, let's make sure that nothing gets left out here. We don't want to waste anything and we certainly don't want to litter. So 12 men go out. People have gone home now. They're still, I think, marveling, and they're still not understanding. Mark 8 tells me that Jesus does the same miracle again, and they didn't understand what he was talking about, Mark says, because their hearts were hardened. But Jesus gives them one last detail, an exclamation point, to help those disciples and these disciples understand what was going on. They gather up the fragments, and how much do they have left? Twelve baskets. Twelve baskets for twelve men. They each went home with more than they started with after the crowd was filled. There's a lesson there for us. You see, the point of this story, I'm convinced, the reason it's recorded four times is for us to consider as a church what Jesus has called us to do. And if you've been attending here for about a year, we have a renewed focus, not because of our cleverness, but because of our simple reading of the Bible. What Jesus has called these disciples to do is what he calls every disciple to do. Disciples are to make disciples. So what Jesus wants us to do is to follow him into the crowd and make disciples. That's what it's about. And our church is at some kind of inflection point where we have to be very, very attentive to what he wants us to do individually as families. As a church body, we have to pay attention to what he wants us to do and decide whether we're going to trust his capacity, his power, his goodness, or we're going to fall back on our own strength and miss it. In 900 people in Christmas Eve services, that's not a lot to a lot of churches. That's an extraordinary couple of days for this church. And 
if it's time for confession, I'll tell you this, a lot of my decisions and a lot of my vision and leadership of this church, honestly, if I'm very honest before Jesus, are cloaked in what I call wisdom, but is actually fear and conservatism and not wanting to risk it and making reasonable plans to a Savior that to me sometimes appears all too unreasonable. See, the people in your world, they have spiritual needs. Unless they know and they're following Jesus, they're just like this crowd. They are like sheep without a shepherd. And I don't know why, and I'm not always thrilled about it when I get in the traffic, but our city is building apparently thousands of new apartment units. And Edinger is going to be an oil painting when everybody moves into those apartments. It's never going to move. You know what's going to be filled? And you know what those apartments are going to be filled with? People who need Jesus, just like your family, just like your friends, just like your neighbors. But the point of this story, I'm convinced, is this. If we obey Jesus, he will provide. Your next step in discipleship is what Jesus has asked you to do. Maybe a whole bunch of things. And decide that you won't base your response to him on your own capacity on what seems reasonable to you, that you're going to base your capacity on his amazing ability to provide for you. So you see, you don't have to succumb to the Christmas slump. We don't have to face as a church the next year with fear, wondering how it's all going to work out. What we have to do is pay very close attention to Jesus and encourage each other along the way to do exactly what he said because when we do, he'll take what little we have and he'll make it enough. And you can give and have enough. And you can join a group. And you can come to church. And you can talk to your neighbor. And you can have the difficult conversation with your family member who desperately needs Jesus. Even with all the stuff you don't know about him in the Bible. And if you'll do it, he will provide. Will you pray with me now? Listen, the point of this sermon is I don't want you to miss it. Jesus is still alive. He's still calling his disciples to follow him. And I wouldn't have you miss it. I don't want to miss it. More than 20 years into the ministry, I could tell you if you had the time, I could tell you of the things I've missed because I looked at myself instead of him. Could you take a moment with him and be honest with him about your own capacity? And just promise him as best you can that you'll pay attention in this coming year. And he'll try to remember who he is and do what he said. That's what he's after. He doesn't depend upon us. He depends upon himself. But he wants to use us to do his will, his work in the world. And listen, maybe there are still some of you here and you're vitally important to us. You matter to Jesus so much more than I can tell you. You haven't crossed the line of faith. You've been coming to church. You've been trying to figure it out. But you haven't trusted him as your savior. Maybe you're saying, I need to know more before I trust him. I get that. But could I invite you in his name to put your fears aside and just trust him and believe him? Tell him, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Show me 
Show me who you are. Answer my questions. But for right now, as best I can with what you've already told me, I believe you. I trust you. Please save me. And he will. That's what he does. Lord, there are hundreds of disciples in this church, and we're all struggling. We're all waiting to have more. When you ask us to do bold things and make disciples, we, we plead our insufficiency. We wait for a better time. We wait to have more knowledge, more money. Lord, help us learn what these disciples should have that afternoon and simply do what you ask and trust you to be there and be yourself and provide. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.